if you're coming to this particular talk, I think you're coming, it says the word scale here, not happiness. Yeah, but what a shitty goal, dude. What a shitty life goal. But what do I want to do? I want to grow a bottom line in revenue. Fuck's sakes, try harder. Like, do more with your life. And what you don't know is Richard and I have been fighting for years. Yeah. <laughs> this is the why you both on the same years. show. <laughs> How's it, guys? So this edition of the Map Brown Show is powered by Entrepreneur Magazine, South Africa's most read how-to handbook for entrepreneurs. The Secrets of Scale is also powered by The Mesh Club, South Africa's first curated membership club for entrepreneurs. So last night we held the first Secrets of Scale event in Johannesburg at The Mesh Club. And our panelists were Elon Reyes, the CEO of Racecorp, Rich Mulholland, the founder of Missing Link, and Howard Mann, the business turnaround specialist and president of Brickyard Builders in the United States. So you're about to hear what went down at the Secrets of Scale last night, and it was highly entertaining to say the least, especially with Elon Reyes and Rich Mulholland having, let's shall we say, differences of opinion about scale and how entrepreneurs should approach scaling their businesses today. Remember that this is the first event of a four-part event series, and so what you're about to hear in this episode is very much context-driven. So there are three parts to this particular show. There's Fundamentals of Scale paths to scale, and then finally barriers to scale. And this is very important to set up as we move forward through the remainder of the event series. And on the upcoming events, we will deep dive into the practical aspects of scaling a business. So if you haven't yet picked up your tickets, guys, you can still do so at qkt.io forward slash secrets of scale. So without further ado, enter Alon Reyes, Rich Mulholland, and Howard Mann. <laughs>
Yo, yo, yo! How's it, guys? Welcome to Secrets of Scale. Give yourselves a round of applause. So, I must say, just to get here took about nine days, right? So, from concept to actual actually being here today, um, literally did take nine days. So, it's been quite an effort. So, I just want to first say thanks to the team that have been working with, Jono, Taryn, Mab, you've been amazing. He's been putting all the videos and stuff together. Um, and then, yeah, of course, we're very excited about Secrets of Scale. So, um, I'm going to introduce... Um, our panelists, so you can see a couple of them up on the screen already. Well, hang on, Jono, there you go. <laughs> um, why is it not? A, there you go, cool. So basically, uh, we're going to cover a few things today, uh, but first I need to get something going. And so we're the media partner for the Mesh Club. So the Mesh Club is South Africa's first curated members club for entrepreneurs. There's 300 of us. Uh, this is where we work. This is where we connect. This is where we collaborate. This is where we do rad stuff. Um, and so um, part of the whole package really was also a media deal with the Entrepreneur Magazine. So what that means for, for you guys is two things. One, you stand a chance to basically have your profile in the magazine itself at the end of the series. Um, and then more importantly, uh, the Mesh Club have come to the table and they've offered you guys all a trial, right? So it's basically a day pass where you come through, you get to meet the people, you literally become a member for a day. Um, and so what I would like you all to do right now is take out your phones, just take it out for a minute. Um, and if you'd humor me just for a second is go to Mesh Club, that's M-E-S-H Club. That's all of you online on YouTube watching us right now as well. Uh, that's meshclub.coza forward slash trial. Um, and it'll literally take a minute or two uh, just for you guys to basically tell us who you, who you are, what you're about, what you're doing in the business space, um, and then we will take it from there. So it's important that you do that now or while we move forward, uh, because at the end of this night's show, um, John is going to do something really cool for you guys. Okay. Um, so having said that, let's get some guests on. Um, so the first guest today is none other than Elon Reyes. He's drinking whiskey. <laughs> Rich, watch out. <laughs> um, cool. So the next panelist here is Rich Mulholland, who you can see on the screen. Wave your hands. Jump up and down. <laughs> okay. Cool, and then none other than our man from the United States. Wave, dance, dance, dance. <laughs> okay, cool. So there's our guests. Um, if you don't know who Elon Rez is, um, I'm actually going to let you introduce yourselves. Just the headlines, not the books that you've all written, please. <laughs> Elon, why don't we start with you? So first of all, hello, Rich. Hey, dude. Hi. Good to hear you. Good to see you. Good to. Uh, my name is Alon Reyes. I'm um, founder of Reyes Corp. Um, we are a, we call ourselves a prosperator, business prosperator. We support entrepreneurs. Um, we support entrepreneurs. We are currently looking after about 500 across South Africa, Angola, Tanzania. Um, and I've been in the space for a long time. 
and uh, I love it still. I still love coming to work. And the subject of scale is very, very close to my heart uh, over the last couple of years. It's something that I've been obsessed with, trying to understand, and I'm very happy to be here. Cool. Rich Mulholland, let's start with you. Hey, so my name is Richard. I own a company called Cultivation. It owns uh, a few other different businesses. Our goal is to cultivate innovative companies. Uh, so companies like Missing Link, uh, presentation firm, human rights, uh, social entrepreneurship firm, and then several others like the sales department and uh, Leaderspeak, Conclave. So I'm excited to be part of growing what I hope to be scalable businesses and looking forward to chatting with you guys. Cool. And then our U.S. representative is none other than Howard Mann. Howard, what's the headline around your story? Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Howard, and uh, I'm the founder of the business Brickyard, which is a uh, uh, a player coach company, which is a, a hybrid, uh, sort of at the intersection of coaching and consultant and strategic consulting, uh, working with companies, uh, all across the United States. Cool. Fantastic. So we're going to basically start off with landing some fundamentals of, of what it means to actually scale today. Um, so I'd like to actually start with Elon. Like when you hear the word scale, what does it conjure up for you? What does it mean for you in the context of entrepreneurship and business today? Thanks, Matt. Um, for me, I think what's important to start off with is context. Context is very important because I, I speak uh, I speak around the, the, the world um, and one of the things that comes up is scale, scale, scale. And there's a very Americanized view of scale. And so when you're speaking to venture capitalists and private equity players and they're talking about scale, they're talking about a thousand times whatever or, you know, uh, uh, five continents. The, the, the level of scale is very, very different to our level of scale here in South Africa. And the problem with that is that when you start trying to model those kind of um, requirements, you miss a whole bunch of opportunities that are here. So for some people, and this has got to do with the human being, with some people, for them, scale is moving from one shop to two shops, and that's fine. For others, it's from one store to a thousand store, thousand stores, and that's fine. So before you even start thinking or talking about scale, I think that the entrepreneur themselves needs to understand what their relationship is with that that number and that size. Because if you're starting to try and produce a business that's a thousand times where you're only comfortable with five times, you know, it, it's it's the beginning of the end really. And it's it's a life then of it's a terrible life after that because you never achieve that or you don't want to. So getting to know what you want as an entrepreneur uh first, I think is the important thing. Cool. And so, um, Rich Mulholland, when I said to him, Hey, dude, come on to Secrets of Scale, he was like, I haven't built a scale business. Scale's a loaded word that means fucking bullshit to entrepreneurs, blah, blah, blah. You know, Rich, if you don't know, you're about to find out the hair, the hair dryer treatment. <laughs> um, but, uh, but basically, Rich is our antagonist, right? So I think it's important to paint the picture of reality on the ground. This isn't scale is actually not for everyone. And we'll dive into more on what that actually means for, for you individually. So, Rich, um, what does scale mean for you, and what's how do how would you describe it, and what's the relevance of that word today? Scale for me is a fashionable word for growth, right? And I guess it goes to what Alon was saying: is that the context of scale has become very, very different. And don't get me wrong; I said to you on the phone that uh, 
you know, I'm scared to talk to be an expert on scale because I haven't scaled. That's got no, that's, you know, not because I don't desire it. You know, I wish I had bucket loads of money in a private jet, uh, but I didn't manage to figure it out. It's not that easy. Uh, but I will say, though, it's not a secret. You can read about it. Every single person who's scaled a business has written 100 articles. Uh, but it requires a whole bunch of luck, and it requires setting up your business for scale in the first place. And I think the mistake that a lot of us made is we want to have, you know, we kind of want to grow this exponential business, but we didn't plant an exponential business seat. And that's a fundamental flaw. So we haven't now trying to scale fundamentally unscalable businesses uh, when, in fact, we should be just growing them maybe incrementally or start something new. Howard, what's your perspective on scale today? I, you know, I echo what Alan and, and, and Richard said about it, it being different for everyone. But, but there is a, uh, a general fascination with growth for the sake of growth. Um, and that, that is the trap. So um, I think every entrepreneur, and I, and I think for the sake of the discussion, you should sort of park uh, venture-backed companies who have investors who are pushing them to grow top line revenue at the expense of all else to, to hire and to, to burn through the money and to raise more money as, as scale just for the sake of revenue growth and not profit. Um, and so for the people in the audience that, that, uh, that profit matters and they need to, there isn't a bottomless well of money from investors coming um, growth has to be balanced with the, the cost it takes to maintain that growth. And, and if you don't have a comfortable margin, uh, then, then you extrapolate all those losses into being out of business. And so you, you have to figure out how do I, there's sort of two pieces. How do I have a mechanism that allows me to continually get new customers or increase my revenue? And how can I maintain and delight those customers at a cost that is a comfortable position lower than what it costs me to get them? And if you don't have that formula in balance, um, then, then it's losses and then you won't be scaling for very long. So let's talk about the difference between scaling a business and then growing a business. Um, Alan, or Alan, how would you um, describe the differences for you know, the mindset around those two things? Yeah, I, I'm going to go back to what uh, Richard said. I loved what he said. He said, uh, setting up the business for scale, which means intention. So for, for me, the difference might be the difference between organic growth, you know, 5 to 10% growth per annum. Um, if you're lucky, trying to do the same thing again and again and again and trying to fight for some extra market. And the other is a, a deliberate strategy where you set the business up, business up uh, across uh, a couple of areas for scale, which would be that you set the, the processes up that can be scaled, you set the people up that can be scaled, and you create the right amount of capital um, for that growth. In other words, your investors are in the wing, or you've got the capital, or as Howard said, you've got the margin in order to scale yourself. But for, for, for me, the, I'd say the nuance uh, is one is deliberate, and one is you know, just organic. Um, what personal anecdotes, Rich, do you could you share with us around 
uh, missing link, for instance, um, when when you started out, um, and you know, what was your mindset related to to growth? I mean, was scaling it to become a really massive presentation company uh, ever in the forefront of your mind, or was it always a case of, look, we're just going to keep taking it day by day and seeing where the thing goes? No, so there was always an intentionality, right? We always wanted to grow the business. Uh, we always wanted to scale our thinking. In fact, our kind of line has always been saving the world one board audience at a time. And we're constantly mindful that we're not saving the world one board audience at a time. That's why we're looking at services like LeaderSpeak, and we're trying to do something on a, we want to take our offering and make it scalable. And I guess that's the other side of scale, is that we want to make our thinking scalable more than we need to make our revenue scalable. Uh, I have a great life, you know, I've got lots of board games, I have motorbikes and life is good. So I don't need too much and I'm not willing to work too much harder to try and make uh, my businesses grow beyond what I require of them. However, I am very, very upset that our thinking hasn't scaled. We have a mindset around doing these things and I want that to scale. I want the, the way that we've changed, the way that we want the world to think about presenting to grow into scale. So we've always been intentional about that. However, at the beginning for me at Missing Link, it was simply about selling. So there was nothing else. There was just go out there and sell to more people and then do that again. And then the idea of scaling was not just to be selling myself, it would be to get other people to sell as well. And that was a process that worked for a while, but it certainly was never going to get us beyond a certain cap. Because uh, the only way for me to score uh, to scale a service business like mine is, is headcount. And there's a point at which you realize that you just don't want to grow a business of that size. Okay. Um, Howard, you do a lot of consulting uh, in the United States to US-based businesses. Obviously, developed economies are completely different to the one that we're playing in right now, and in South Africa specifically being a developing economy. Um, and Howard um, is often described as a business turnaround specialist. So typically, these are businesses which either don't lend themselves to scale, and we'll get into more about, around that in a second, um, or they just simply don't have the margin to scale, they're not liquid enough to scale, or potentially the founder itself or or him or herself isn't actually the type of business owner that can scale a business. So, uh, um, Howard, in your opinion, in consulting as a turnaround specialist in the United States, I mean, what have you observed across your clients when your experience is consulting over there in a different, a more developed economy? Is it easier for them to scale over there versus, um, versus say, a South African-based business? Um, what commonalities do you see there? They, they I, you'll find that they, they share the same issues. They're, you know, human beings and they'll, they have the same, same issues. So, um, they, they hit what, what, uh, uh, author Dan Sullivan calls, uh, ceilings of complexity. So they grow by, uh, they started the business, they sell to anybody who will buy from them. Uh, they hire people to, to perform those services and they wind up doing, a whole host of different things because in the beginning, when somebody asks you if you can do something, your answer is always yes. Um, and so, the, you know, the work to figure out how to scale as Rich just alluded to is, all right, we're doing a whole bunch of things for a whole bunch of people, but we're not, uh, we, we've hired a lot of people and we've hit some, some point of offering a lot of services, but is there uh, one thing that we do or one nugget of, of part of what we do that is scalable. And in, and in that sense, is it something that we could offer uh, um, to 10,000 people and it won't cost us uh, 
the, almost the same amount. I mean, when you, when uh, uh, the Kindle came about uh, and people started downloading digital books, the scale there is enormous because they're the cost of selling a hundred thousand books is, is the same as selling two. So is there a nugget in your business that would allow that kind of scale without a, a almost an equal amount of cost? And once you have that, how do you, uh, how do you market that? How do you package that? So it no longer requires uh, a commensurate increase in headcount. I mean, what are some examples of that? Um, I mean, what if, if, I mean, let's just take my business, which is a media business on a media scale is probably a lot easier than a hair salon. <laughs> but, uh, but if there was right. something that, the, you know, is there a criteria? Is it like the product that's selling better than the other six that you have? Is it the thing that you're most passionate about? I mean, in other words, is it business led or is it sort of passion led? Like what, what's well, the kind I, of I evaluating? I think it's both. So, so I'm thinking of a company I work with that, that was a software company. And in the early days, every client that bought their software asked them to do it a little bit different. And so they hired more coders and they wound up with 20 clients and 20 variations of their software to, uh, that they were delivering and maintaining and tweaking. Um, and so the work and, and not making any money. And so the work there was uh, to say, hold on, everybody, this is the product that we're offering. This is how it works. How do we make it so it plugs in in a way that we don't have to customize it every time. And then the friction in somebody being able to, to get and use the software uh, went down dramatically, even if the price of the software went down dramatically and they got out of being a, a software agency, which is what it had turned into and, and a piece of software that people could buy, use, pay them for, uh, and, and maintain one piece of code. But, but that's true in, in almost every business. What, what nugget or, or piece of knowledge or, or product can you offer that you don't have to customize every time? That you can template, even if even if you're a law firm, most law firms nowadays, uh, if they focused on one type of law, the 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 ninety percent of the agreements that they're writing are from a template. So how many more of those could you produce if you if you weren't doing bespoke work every single for every single client? Um, Alon, you obviously incubate uh, businesses here through the RaceCorp uh, program. How many have you actually incubated now over the years? Roughly, um, twelve thousand. Um, okay, yeah, about twelve thousand in, in and about twenty thousand others, but in, in non incubation. But yeah, uh, sorry, uh, I'm I'm not a good listener. Aren't, uh, <laughs> yeah, so rebel. twenty twenty that was it. Twelve thousand businesses. Yeah, 12, eighteen years I've been doing this before you were born, Matt. No, no, she's <laughs> just imagine how far I'm going to go. Hey? <laughs> So, uh, but that's interesting, right? So, I mean, we, I mean, look, let's talk about commonalities, right? Because I think that's that's the thread around this whole thing. Like, what's the thing that ties a scalepreneur together? I guess, or the mindset, or business, whatever it might be. And when you look back at all of those entrepreneurs that have come through your doors, some have been wildly successful, some have obviously failed, some you've taken equity ownership in, some you've just let go. Mm. I mean, how would you describe uh, a commonality or a cause that gets a business to go from small to start or in other words from small to the start of the scaling process so i'm going to go back to to what i said earlier which is the the entrepreneur themselves um their desire it has to start there because if that's not there and and, and let's just 
qualify that. There's a lot of um, hype. I like what uh, how uh, when Richard spoke to you, so it's a you know there's a lot, a lot of hype around it, and so a lot of people are sort of feel that it's hip to say uh, I'm all about scale. We internally they don't want it. So I think what's important is for the entrepreneur to start off and get to the point where they, they said this is what they want. Okay. The second, the second thing is to, to Howard's point. I feel like I'm just summarizing what the other two are saying. What, what Howard is saying is that there has to be something that's replicable, um, uh, at cheaper and cheaper cost in, in the environment. The issue is that, that a lot of entrepreneurs on, on Excel spread, Excel is a very dangerous thing for entrepreneurs because <laughs> it, it, it always produces some, it always produces a positive uh, cash flow, always. Okay. It always produces a J curve. And, and you feel very clever if you go in your month 13, you go plus one times and you reference the uh, inflation rate and that's the, what your costs are going to move at. And your top line's gonna go 10, 20, 30, and you just drag. Okay. And that's how, how, that's how you scale in your mind. Um, but reality is very, very, very different. And what happens is, is these complexities and, and how you deal with them. Um, and it's about, f- f- for me, it's about the fact that the, the business itself, when it scales, actually scales at a cheaper cost, really. So let me give you an example of that. Many entrepreneurs, when they, they show, this is my business case, they go, oh, there it is. I'm, I'm pretty, I put in a hundred at the top and 10 falls out the bottom. So then if I put in 200, 22 should fall out the bottom because I can rationalize this. But the issue is that the infrastructure to actually is not costed properly because I'm working from home. And now I have to pay real rent. The, the, my employees are my cousin's brother's mother's sister's son who hasn't worked in three years and will work for 4,000 rand a month. And so I've got him. So when I look at that, that my actually cost, my cost structure is actually not real. And as soon as I scale, it has to become real because now I have to get real rental, pay real rentals, pay real, um, um, salaries, et cetera. The second thing that where we make a mistake is that certain businesses, because of that complexity, require more management. So as you scale, now you need one manager to manage those 10 guys. If Richard was saying this, he would say 10 something else. But uh, he said you need, you, need, you need one person to manage 10 other people. And what, what happens is, is certain businesses, when they scale, the complexity of management actually becomes more and more expensive, and that's not costed in, and actually they land up making less money. So what Richard was saying earlier about head, more and more headcount, okay, in order to achieve it, very often leads to less and less bottom line. And so what I've seen, what you have to look for is businesses where you can do that without the management, where the cost structures scale properly and really you know, in terms of that there is economies of scale and not just on an Excel spreadsheet. I suppose largely, I don't want to go spend too much time on cost, but I guess there's a lot of unknowns, right? So even before the entrepreneur, even if he's hungry or she's hungry, like there's a whole bunch of costs that you just don't know, right? Until you actually are scaling and you're burning cash and God forbid you have a a, a venture capitalist, Benji, (laughs) backing you. Um, They want growth, right? They want 20 times your money. You know what I'm saying? So, but before we get in there, I want to talk about the person again, because if that's the thing that makes a business scale, and that's the, the, the one thing that you reckon is the one thing above all else that makes a business go from small to scale
scalable is the entrepreneur himself and his hunger for actually scaling. And in fact, Rich, you mentioned to me months ago, I can't remember when it was, but you said to me, the difference between someone who builds a really big business and someone who stays a small business is comes down to one thing, and that's hunger. How hungry are they to actually go and make a dent in the world? Uh, Rich, what was your um, what are your thoughts on that statement? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So there's a there's a weird irony. There's a there's a, a problem that faces all of us. In that one side, it's the ego of the entrepreneur that wants to scale. Nobody needs to build. The job was never to build these amazing companies, right? That's not a job. That's just something we desire to do for ego and for any other reason. Uh, you can have a relatively mediocre sized business that will look on anybody else's measure as a failure uh, that has made a fantastic life for you forever. So the only reason we want to scale is we want to prove to our friends that we're as good as them. But the only reason I personally want to build a scalable business is I'm sick of all my friends selling companies for so much more money. And I just want to prove to them this is bullshit. I can do it as well. I actually don't need more, but I'm just sick of looking like the poor guy. So, so that's ego problem number one. And where that, I guess, the, the problem with that is that to build a scalable business requires removing your ego because you've got to be able to separate the entrepreneur. You can't have, you know, a business like Missing Link is quite dependent on myself or Don or Donovan standing up in front of people and, you know, telling a big story and convincing them something magical. But unless I can build something that removes the three of us from the equation and I can hire anybody to come in and do it, uh, I can't scale that. So you've got this problem with my ego wants the business to scale, but my ego also doesn't want to, to prove that I am not needed. And this... Uh, pool is very, very difficult for us to manage. And it's definitely something that I found a struggle. How do I build this and separate myself? And that's why the only way I was able to do it eventually, and I realized I have to step away completely. And that's why in September last year, I stepped away from the business. Uh, I removed myself to give the business a chance to grow separate for me. Because actually what I feel had happened is that the entrepreneur, the person with the vision and the idea was the very person that was stopping the business from scaling. And that was me. I mean, how do you know when you need to actually step off? I mean, what were the events that led up to you making that call? Because you've been running, you know, Missing Link for two decades. You know, you basically consulted to all pretty much every major corporation, C-suites, executive, 
uh, in the country. Uh, you've achieved so much. You're one of the best speakers in the country, if not the best. You speak all around the world. So you had, by all measures, achieved a lot, right? You had scaled insofar as what scale meant for you. Um, but like, so, but then what happened? Like, what were the events that led up to you going, actually, you know what? It's better for me to step off. Um, and I want to go into that because I think it's important because it addresses the mindset. Um, because the person that I need to be, for instance, to run Matt Brown Media where it is now versus, say, running it when it's got 150 staff is a completely different thing. And, you know, it's a passion thing also because I know that I love starting things. I hate managing people. Do you know what I'm saying? So you might want to get a CEO in, which is kind of what you've done, to step off so that the business can actually grow beyond what you could do. Do you know what I'm saying? So what were the events that led up to, to you making that decision? What did you learn through that process? Well, dude, nothing will stop you from having an amazing business, like having a pretty good one. And I had a pretty good business. I had a great company as well. So I have a great company that is also a mediocre business. And we're aware of that. You know, we look around and press are writing about us and people talking about, you know, we, we are appearing in newspapers and websites and, and all these things. But the business itself is just okay. Now, okay is a real problem because I don't need much. I go snowboarding every year. I buy the games I want. You know, my mediocre life or lifestyle requires what my business can give me. So I, I ran out of hunger. When I started the business, everything I wanted, I couldn't afford. Everything. And so I had to fight and fight and fight. And then at some point after maybe 10 years, the fight was gone. The other problem was I started public speaking. And the, the, that feeling I used to get as an entrepreneur when I was uh, walking into a meeting and selling something, nothing was like it. It was like the biggest high. And then I started speaking. And then I would get off the stage and people would cheer. And that high was so much higher than the high of selling something. The problem was the high of somebody cheering at you is a, a 9 out of 10. But it was a 2 out of 10 in terms of revenue. Whereas the high of selling a you know, million rand conference, well, that was only a five or six out of 10, but it was worth so much more. And so again, I got in the way of the business. And once we realized that, that my speaking career was growing, uh, you know, reputation was doing well, but the business was stagnating, I realized that I was the problem, that I put my focus on other things. And the other problem was, is that I felt that because I was doing okay, that everything was fine. But what I'd forgotten is that I was at the top of the pyramid. So I have these people who work for me. And if I'm just at okay, they are living in a state of less than okay. And I realized, holy shit, I've let my satisfaction get in the way of their success. So I needed to remove myself from the equation to put a hungry person at the top. And that's what I set out to do. So you can never let your satisfaction get in the way of your success. That's certainly yeah, the mistake that I was making. Cool. That's so great. Um, Alon, you're scaling, weirdly enough. How about those apples? <laughs> so, I mean... Uh, can I respond to, to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I agree with Richard wholeheartedly. I just want to just make add a nu nuance to, to what he says. I think there's a, a different mindset. You know, there's, a, there's somebody in the audience today who, who I, I work with a lot, and, and there's, there's three of us that have been obsessed around scale and the mindset around scale for years. And the thing is that the route to, to scale is different for everyone. But what is common amongst all is that there is an academic relationship with scale. And that sort of talks to what Richard was saying about the fact that sort of your ego needs to, to be removed. So for, for me, the nuance in what, what 
how I see it is that when you research entrepreneurs, there are three types of entrepreneurs. They're the lifestylists, sorry, the survivalists, the lifestylists, and the growth. And when you re- research the, the, what they call the psychological typology of, of these entrepreneurs, the growth entrepreneur, when you ask them the question, why do you want to grow? Why do you want to, why, if you ask Ray, wake Raymond Ackerman up in the middle of the night and say, why do you want another pick and pay? They don't know. Well, if you asked uh, Richard Branson, why another virgin business? They don't know. It's about how big does this thing get before I die? It's an academic relationship with, with this thing. It's not, it's, it's about the game. It's not about the money. It's about the game and it's about, it's the fantasy with, uh, about building, about getting this thing to see how big it, it can get. Now, if you have purpose in built into that as well, I mean, that makes it doubly but more powerful. And some people will build a scalable business with purpose and some will build it without purpose. And and there's a whole emphasis today around purpose-built businesses, but I can promise you Coca-Cola doesn't sit there and think, you know, our purpose is to, you know, you know, caffeinate um, thousands of teenagers so that they're wobbling like this. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to sell more Coca-Cola. Okay, and and get as much sugar and caffeine out there as as, as possible. Okay, but so I want to stick with you though because you've been, as you said earlier, you've been doing this thing for twenty years, right? So you've been scaling businesses, but also what many of our uh, viewers online and people in the room won't know is that you're actually scaling now. I don't know what that means necessarily because I haven't really been you know part of that journey with you as much as I sh- supposedly should have, but um. Why are you scaling now? I mean, you're, you're implementing systems, technology, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff to start to scale RaceCorp. Like, why now after 20 years? I think, I think it was Donnie Gordon who, who was quoted from Liberty as saying, when they asked him, like, when he listed, he said, it took me 27 years to become an overnight success. Um, and, and, and really, the, what, the, what the real story is, is that scale is an exponential thing. It's about... First of all, about your knowledge, your confidence, uh, your profitability, um, your perspective, your maturity. And for me, what's happened over the years is as I've got to, I'm 51, this, I'm 51 now, and hey, there ain't much time left, okay, to see how big this can get, thing can get before I die. So for me, all those that there's the Venn diagram of all those things has come together over the last couple of years. And, and I, I, you know, you, you hear in the press, you hear when you speak to successful entrepreneurs to build a hundred million dollar business or build a million dollar business is just a state of mind. And, and you don't get it till you get it. And it took me a long time to get it, quite frankly. And I worked with a dollar billionaire, somebody who's built a global business and, and hear this with no edifice to himself. In other words, no building, no company name, but he's probably one of the wealthiest people in the world. And he, ha- he is the master, in my opinion, of scale. And I've worked with him over years to try and get that Venn diagram filled with the right mindset, the right confidence, all the things in place for me to, to scale. If I don't do it now, I will live in regret because I have a, a real academic relationship with scale. It's, it's a beautiful thing to try and work out, to solve. Yeah, Rich, Rich you actually do a talk called Payable to Regret. Um, what does that message mean in the context of what we're talking about today? Just a headline there quickly. 
Well, it just means that uh, we all have certain things. Every time we say no to something, we write a check that's payable to regret. And at one point, uh, regret is going to come back and ask you to cash those checks. Now, what I, what I realized is that for, say, Alon, uh, if he doesn't give it, I mean, Alon will not regret it if he doesn't build a scalable business, but he will regret it if he doesn't give it his best shot, right? If he's tried properly and gone for it, because that's his thing. But uh, for me, I realized that that's not my thing. That's not something, there are certain business-related goals I have, but I want to write a bunch more books and I want to, I mean, he's already written more books than I hope to write uh, in my career. And so, so there's different things we're doing at different times. But I just think that if there's something you want to achieve, if you don't give it a good shot for the right amount of time, if you don't try, you will one day have to pay, you know, pay back that regret check. And I think that's problematic. However, I, also the realization is those goals change. Because when I was 20, I thought I wanted to be a billionaire. When I'm 30, I realized I probably wouldn't be. And when I was 40, I stopped giving a fuck. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Can you say that last word again? <laughs> <laughs> It is the Matt Brown show. We swear on these parts. Um, I was trying to make you feel better because you were the only guy who dropped an F-bomb. And I'm feeling terrible because everyone is acting like I'm supposed to swear. On principle, that's the only one you're getting. Yeah. You're, <laughs> but you're allowed at least three, three max, right, per show. Otherwise, it wouldn't be real. So, <laughs> so I want to actually switch to Howard because when I interviewed Howard for the first time, this was last year sometime, um, we're talking about companies actually adopting the digital sort of ecosystem. So, you know, um, non-digitally enabled companies becoming digital companies so that they can start to actually grow and scale. Um, and just I want to stick on this whole theme around hunger and actual, you know, the entrepreneur being the, the actual definitive point of departure around scale. And Howard, you and, I, you and I actually had a really great chat and you made this key point and of everything that you said, which was amazingly valuable, the one thing that still sticks with me right now, today and that I'm going to share with everyone is that he said people seem to be falling in love with this idea that in order to scale, you need to go and raise tons of money, right? Um, you need a VC, you need some form of cash injection um, to scale, to actually grow from like five to 50, right, quickly. And in today's world, why not, right? There's a whole rhetoric around that, Silicon Valley largely driven. Um, and so, uh, and it was interesting for me because you landed this point, which was people don't get it because when they do take the money, the whole thing changes. The culture of the business changes. The entrepreneur hates reporting to an investor. Now he has to do like management reports. And quite frankly, he doesn't want to do that or she doesn't want to do that. And he said, actually, the guy who doesn't take capital to scale is actually the guy that is happier because he runs a business. And Howard's written the actual book on this, by the way. It's called Business Brickyard. And we're going to give you all copies later. Um, but, um, but Howard, can you just talk about that? Because I think it's important before we move on to paths to scale. Well, there's a there's a freedom that comes from uh, it being your own money. Um, the minute that you take investment from somebody, um, a they're going to want that money back, uh, multiples of that money back, in in a time frame that is three to five years, even if it's five to ten years on the outside. Uh, and so the minute you take that money, the clock is now ticking for you to scale, to scale it to a certain size and to exit the business. And so, it, you know, for everybody who's ever run a business that is not beholden to anybody, 
gets it to a, a level where it provides them and everybody who works for them a very comfortable living, um, that exit is not always the, the, the right thing to do. And it's not always uh, what they'd want to do. If, if, if I told everybody in the audience, they could just have a, you know, a 10 or 15 person company that uh, had extraordinary amounts of profit and they could run it forever and it, and it ran itself and, and, and made a good life for everybody in the company. That, that's just as good as a 10,000 person company that's making the same profit. Um, it's just, uh, you know, as Rich alluded to, it's ego or pride. Um, and, you know, the, the, not everybody wants to run a 10,000 person organization. Not everybody, uh, you know, there's something sexy because we read about how Instagram got bought by a billion dollars after being in business for a year. And so everybody wants to chase that, but it's a lottery ticket. Um, and, and, you know, Rich is being modest about, about missing link, but missing link, uh, you know, provides him what he needs uh, and allows him to go speak and, and do those other things you know, not that scale, that scale for, for what scratches his itch. Uh, if he had an investor breathing down his back and saying, you have to now uh, make sacrifices and do things that you're not comfortable with or do things that you don't believe in so that, so that me, Mr. Investor gets my three times money back. Um, that, that's not a great way to go to work every day. Yeah, so I think these are great points to land, right? So does anyone have a burning question before we move on at all? We'll have another chance to ask questions later. Cool. So let's talk about paths to scale, right? So is your business scalable? So how many of you here are running your own business? Hands up. Okay, pretty much everyone. How many of you think that you have a scalable business? Hands up. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, What business do you run? Golf Academy. Golf Academy? Okay, you definitely scale agriculture and tech, he says. <laughs> um, cool. So I guess what I'm trying to get to here is that you've got different types of businesses, right? It's like a hair salon, uh, a plumber is kind of hard to scale. It's very, you know, people intensive, for instance. So from, at, if, if you think about technology also being quite a key enabler of, of scale, Benji, I'm going to mention you again simply because you're on our panelist on Monday. Um, but, um, but, how does one approach the scaling process? So let's start with the tech-enabled business. So you've got this chap here who runs a tech agriculture player. How does one approach scale from his perspective? And then I want to dive into the guy who runs a non-traditionally scalable business, like Aeslon. So, so um, from our perspective, all businesses can scale. Every single type of business can scale. If you look around the world, there are in every one of your businesses, there's somebody who's 10 times, 100 times, maybe a thousand times bigger than you are. So somebody has worked out how to do it. And that is my, uh, my answer to why every business can scale. Okay. So I start there. Number two, the whole thing around technology is that I think technology, I mean, you live in the tech world. Um, I don't. I live on the periphery of it. I don't see it as um, a, a 100% requirement. I see it as an enabler, as a platform, but not the, necessarily the thing. It could be a formula. It could be distribution. It could be a whole bunch of other things in which 
technology is, but not technology in of itself. Because when we think of scale, we think of, we speak about the example of LinkedIn, we're thinking about digital businesses and they scale beautifully because of the cost of distribution. But there is 99% of the world out there is not digital businesses. They are just, you know, bricks and mortar type business. And I've just, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a World Economic Forum event here in, in, in Johannesburg. And the 4IR, the fourth industrial revolution was brought up and, and all the, the fluff around it, et cetera. And there was this huge wave of dissent around it because the view was that, okay, the farmers now, talking about Mr. Agriculture here, the farmers are producing more tomatoes, but the, the roads are not in place to get the tomatoes to market. So, so that's wonderful. We've got tech and we've got satellites telling us where and what to do, but the fun, other fundamentals are not in place. And until there's, that's in place, the whole thing doesn't work. So I, I'm, I'm not as, as, um, infatuated with technology. I see it as an enabler. I see it for what it is. Um, I'm in, in many instances afraid of it because of it's when I invest in any technology, I'm always worried about, Will this be outdated in two years? And will the people to support it be there in two years? Or will be they showing me the new f- shiny technology that I need to have? So I, I don't have a good relationship w- with it. Um, and therefore, perhaps I'm not the first person to ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Howard, Rich, I'll open it up to you guys. Do you believe personally that any business can scale? Anyone? Anyone? Uh, I lost you guys for a second there. Okay, cool. The question was... Froze a bit. Yeah, cool. Uh, The question was, do you guys believe that any business is scalable? Yeah, 100% buy into uh, what Alan said, but I think any or any business type is scalable, but not all companies are scalable. Some people's businesses are fundamentally not built uh, built, uh, to be scalable the way they have already built them. So I think that hairdressing salon that is a thousand times larger than the one uh, in the strip mall next to my house was built with a different intention in mind. But I don't think that uh, goes in any way against what Alon was saying because it all comes back to the intentionality. You know, when the person started that business, that Vidal Sassoon or whatever it was at the beginning, they had the vision and the idea that they didn't want to have one hair salon. They wanted to have thousands. Uh, The Zumba guy, you know, there's a hundred people doing aerobics this guy never wanted to just do that he wanted to build a scalable dance party around the planet and that was the mindset from the start so everything can scale but not everyone's built uh, with that scale in mind just just to add on to that i you know i think so, there's been a lot of of single smaller businesses so you take that hair salon you could have somebody who was you know vidal sassoon who had a uh, you know, a gift that built a following and built, built a very uh, popular single salon. Um, there, and, and that would be true for anybody who was just starting a, a restaurant or anything like that. Um, they then have a, they have, they're at an inflection point to, to make a decision. Am I happy just having this one salon and I just want to cut hair for the rest of my life? Uh, because at some point, a consultant or somebody will come along and say, listen, if you can turn this into a formula, if you can train people to cut hair like you do, and if you can have a line of products, 
we'll stamp these out around the world for you and you can build an empire. And they have a decision to make. Does, does that fit with their desire and what they want? And if they do, they have to make sacrifices in that they won't be the one cutting all the hair. Um, but, but if they want to, if they want to make that decision, then anything can steal. A restaurant can, we, you know, a restaurant can steal. There was one McDonald's at, at one point. And it, and it was built on refining the process of how to quickly deliver a hamburger in, in, a, in 60 seconds. They didn't want to have, the original brothers didn't want to have more than one restaurant. They just wanted to make one that was great. Somebody had to come along and say, you know, you could have tens of thousands of these. And so, um, but not enough businesses take the time to really refine their process in one location, doing one thing, so that they could think about growing. It is just, you know, you know, there's this hub and spoke thing where it's the, the business owner has to have their hands on every single thing. That's not scalable. Um, can I just jump in and say, though, that, so, sorry, guys, to the, to the point of, say, McDonald's and scale, we need to decide what it is we define scale as. So the first problem is that we all see that scale by itself means success. And I think that's not necessarily true. The, uh, what's it called? The test kitchen. Uh, around the corner here. That's, you know, the best known restaurant in South Africa. And that chef has no desire to turn it into a McDonald's franchise or that style or size of business. What they want to scale is their reputation. And I think what we have to turn around and do is we have to draw a scale at the top of the page. And then we have to look through a business and write down all the things that could scale. We could scale headcount, we could scale revenue, we could scale our knowledge, we could scale our reputation, we could scale our brand. We can scale our product set. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is the one thing we desire scaling the most? So I want to scale our IP, I want to scale our thinking, and I want to scale our reputation. And so that requires a very different relationship with the word scale than simply scaling revenue and growth. It doesn't require headcount, but it does require marketing. It does require all those other things. So I think we need to understand that scale is just a word for X uh, times itself. But unless you define properly what X is, you're defaulting to somebody else's definition of success. And that definition of success was revenue goals. And then we're competing in the Olympics against guys like Zuckerberg. And unfortunately, most of us, even, you know, the guys who just sold um, uh, the Paddock Brothers, right? Even their astronomical success from a South African point of view doesn't make them a blip on the radar in, in global wealth there. So they've not scaled according to that measurement. And I think we need to decide what that is and get more intentional about that up front. But what does success look like? To, you know, to, to even build on top of that, not only what does success look like, but, but for the individual, why? Why do you want to grow? Um, there, you know, I, I have this conversation initially with my clients all the time because you know, they, they may want to grow, but they don't even know why and to what end and to what purpose and and would they want to run a company that grows the way they think about it in their minds you know they they have peers who have built enormous companies and so they think i i have to grow and and i think you know matt i wrote to you about that that ricardo similar uh quote that only two things grow for the sake of growth businesses and tumors and and there's there's no there's no re necessarily a reason to grow uh unless you understand why, because if you're just growing for the sake of growth, 
you know, your, your passion and your hunger for it's going to fade. If, if you're somebody who is, who's, is super passionate about um, the, what it would take to, to build tens of thousands of restaurants that all just deliver the food and the supply chain and how it works, the, the passion and the drive to do that would drive you to do that. But if you're somebody who just takes pride in having the best restaurant in South Africa, and, and then you just think about how I can do it, um, you know, watch on Netflix, there's a, there's a series called Chef's Table where they, where they profile uh, a, a Michelin uh, ranks chef in each episode. They all have one restaurant. It's world famous. People travel to the corner of a world to just eat there. Um, that's what makes them happy. And they live a nice life. I mean, you know, we're circling back to the beginning, but, but scale should mean different things to everybody. It should serve what's going to make you happy because if you spend 20 years chasing sale and it all falls away, then how do you feel? What was your life about? If you gave up spending time with your family, if you gave up uh, your happiness and your smile just for the sake of, of growth, um, that's not a lot to look back on. Um, Alan, Alan, do you want to jump in? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I, I need to um, be a little controversial here because I think uh, – what is the name of this uh, this uh, thing? How to scale your business, right? So the, what's the secrets of scale? So to me, the people who are coming to this place are, are wanting to scale. So I would agree with you 100% that it's about what it means to you, whether you want to scale your reputation or you want to scale your your top line. But for me, most entrepreneurs, and this is the, 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 my experience, most entrepreneurs want to scale two things. They don't want to scale revenue. They want to scale bottom line and value. Those are the two things that they're looking to scale. They want to, to get as much return on their time as possible. That is the majority. Now, I'm not, of people who want to scale. Now, I'm not t- taking away anything from what's being said now because I, I started off by saying, what do you want? That's the starting point. But if you are coming to a place as a secrets of scale, my, my understanding of the people who would come to an organization uh, to a, a, a talk like this would be that they are coming here because they have some fascination with the subject of scale. They're not here to talk about their small business and are happy about their salon and their plumbing business. They want to scale. But, and if they want to scale their happiness, maybe coming to this isn't the, the right, the right <laughs> place. Unless, unless happiness for you is about achieving what you see and achieving a, a better return on your time in terms of bottom line and, and better value. And if you, if you lose it all, well, you lose it all. But you could have lost a medium-sized business. I've seen businesses, medium-sized and small businesses, lose it as well. So if you're going to lose it, you might as well try and achieve what you to fulfill your potential and your dream, whatever that might be. But if you're coming to this particular talk, I think you're coming. It says the word scale here, not happiness. Yeah, but what a shitty goal, dude! What a shitty life goal. Oh, what do I want to do? I want to grow a bottom line in revenue. Fuck's sakes, try harder. Like, do more with your life. Like, uh, what you don't know is Richard and I have been fighting for years. Yeah. <laughs> this is the why you both on the same years. show. 
I can't understand. I can't understand. I think that, so again, and I come back to the point that this job thing and careers and entrepreneurs, you know, I've, I, you know, I've said, to, Alon and I were in forum together and I said to him, I remember resigning after a few months saying, I need to leave this EO, this entrepreneur's organization, because I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneurial person. And because I realized that business is not the, the goal. Business is not the end. It's the means to the end. So for me, the victory condition is always something that exists outside of the company. And so I should always want to scale uh, beyond the company and beyond the revenue goals. You know, there's a guy, his name is, and you guys should all check him out. His name is Warren Rustand. Uh, he's an amazing individual. And he said this once to me. He said, one's success is only important when measured against one's potential. And it rocked me to my core because I thought, wow, I've never fulfilled my potential. I'm not even close. I need to work harder. And later on, I actually got angry with him for that statement because that is an unfulfillable prophecy. No matter what Elon Musk achieves in his life, no matter what he does, he could be sitting on Mars getting a blowjob with a cocktail and he dies and he'll still think, oh, I could have done more. I still have more potential. And so you think beyond just these goals. Could have got, got more blowjobs on the beach. Quickly, <laughs> you, can, you can see how Rich has thought through the whole Mar. What the point to getting to Mars is about? Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. So, okay, this is yeah. great. So, I, I feel I need to respond, Rich. Yeah, let, yeah. Let's let's just, get back into going. let's get back to, into to which forum, part? To which forum. part? So, so for for me, I, I think the 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 flaw in in the logic that we've heard right now is that it assumes that I'm not happy, and I am. To use um, Richard language, I'm fucking happy. Okay, I am ecstatic. I am 18 years in this. I cannot wait to go to work tomorrow. I love what I do. I've loved what I do every day. And 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 and, and, uh, just let me finish, Rich. Let me finish, Rich. I love what I do. I see the world. I speak around the world. I meet the most incredible people. I go to the most exotic places in the world. I still haven't had that thing on the beach yet, but I'm working on it. Okay, and and uh, but so so it doesn't mean these are mutually exclusive realities. I, I'm I can one scale feel that I I'm going to die trying and be happy. Rich, no, I just think that the, one of the differences for Alan and knowing him well, remember every time he scales, his business is a business of purpose. So he's not scaling himself. He's not he's not changing his lifestyle or his house. He's changing the lifestyles and houses of 12,000 other entrepreneurs. And I think that's what's exciting, right? And I can understand why of your purpose. And again, his modesty is that, uh, you know, he's not changed much. Uh, his business has grown astronomical. He's helped so many more people since I've met him, but he's not changed the car he drives. Uh, you know, his lifestyle is somewhat uh, the same. And so his is a purpose-led business. And if you, I'm willing to bet and challenge, if you said I can stop you affecting all of those people and only grow your um, uh, bottom line, would you still feel as exciting going to work tomorrow? And I'm not sure if that would be the case. I'm not sure if just adding zeros to the bank, the, the bankroll would be enough for him. This is a man who's built a business that is helping other people build hundreds of businesses. So I, there is, it's not an absolute. Like I, if I was Alana, I would also love going to work every day. You know, I would love the idea because it's a business driven by purpose at its fundamental core. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't have that. Okay. Yeah, cut it up. Okay. You win that one, Rich. 
So, uh, Rich, I want to touch on that thing around the victory condition because this is all around planning as much as it is deciding on the path that you want to adopt, whether that's raising capital or not or bootstrapping it um, and taking all that pain that comes along with that, trust me. Uh, (laughs) um, So, and and Howard, I'd love you to interject with the concept of the 36-month year um, and talk about the relevance of that in the context of scale and paths to scale. Um, So, Rich, can you just explain to us when you said victory condition, what does that term mean in the context of what we're talking about today? Sure. Um, let's say I wanted to teach you guys how to play Yamatai. It's a board game. The first thing I would have to do is explain to you what it takes to win. If I wanted to explain the rules to you, the first thing I would have to do is say to you, okay, in order to win this game, you have to have uh, the, the biggest influence across the entire board by the end of the game. Understanding that makes the rules very, very simple from that point on. Now, what we realize in business is that we often are not intentional about the condition of victory. And we only ever see the condition of victory in our business as a certain amount of money. And this uh, leads very nicely into Howard's 36-month year. For me, our 36-month goal at Missing Link is a revenue goal. There is a certain amount of growth required. But say, for example, our victory condition a year ago was to be a collars and cuffs businesses uh, business. That meant that we wanted to be a last mile customization company. We wanted our entire business to be productized. And so we built for a year, we focused every single bit of our efforts on productizing everything in our business. And the rule was, could we hire a photocopy salesman to sell our product? Whereas before it required a very consultative sales process, we wanted to build a business that was scale-able. And in order to do that, we needed to not be reliant on the consultant business owners. So our victory condition for that year was to productize everything. The byproduct of that victory condition was to make a business that was able to scale uh, through the power of sales and marketing. And in fact, this year, our our victory condition is uh, to turn our business from a sales-led business into a marketing-led business. And this is where I think tech is important. What I've started to realize right now fundamentally is that every single one of us, in order to scale in any way today, we are marketing companies first and foremost. We think we're a product company, but we're not. We're a marketing company. And either we are a good marketing company or we are a failed marketing company. And I, you know, I've been looking with LeaderSpeak and Conclave, the more tech businesses that we're looking at. And nine to one is the ratio of money that we should be spending on how we market our business and what we learn from that marketing, how we're targeting people through Facebook and through Google and things like that. So our victory condition right now is to, to transform our entire business into realizing that that's what it is. It is a North Star. It's a thing to look at, to measure yourself on, to say, if I've not achieved this, by the end of one year, I have failed. Why? Because then I won't make my 36-month year target. And that uh, tees Howard up to explain that concept. Right. So, so that, that, uh, that idea came from um, what I see as sort of the trap of, of businesses thinking incrementally instead of exponentially. And so just the way that things are because of stock markets and, and quarterly reports and, and, and annual tax returns, um, businesses effectively set a, a goal for the end of the year at the beginning of the year. They fight like hell to, to get to it. They borrow from the next year to hit their numbers in, in December. Uh, 
and effectively have to reinvent their business every January uh, and try to do that business all over again, but maybe 20% higher. And that, that's a bit of a trap. So what, what, I, what I wanted people to start to think about is how would you approach your business if your year wasn't 12 months? And as a construct, what if it was 36 months? How would you go about a 36-month year and build the business that you really want instead of the ego-driven uh, hitting a number at the end of the year that, that essentially means nothing unless you're a public company and you need it for your stock price? So if you had 36 months to build the business that you want, you'd, be, you'd take the time in those first 12 months to plant the seeds in new fields, to do the things that you need to do uh, to automate because you're not under that pressure. Um, you do the things in the second year that would start to really uh, accelerate your growth. And you do the things at the, towards the end of that 36-month year that would get you to where you really wanted your business to go. And, and what happens to a business that takes the quarterly and annual pressure off of itself uh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's made in our own minds and thinks about, well, if I had the business that I really want three years from now, do I care what the, where I am at the mid post and, and, and different quarters? Or could I actually invest? Can I let my business run uh, and invest and do the things that I need to do to think bigger and, and really scale the business to what I want it to be because I've given myself the time and the space to do so. Cool. I, I love that concept of the 36th month. Yeah, but I want to take a question from you. Just your name and then your question. Go ahead. And who's it for? Sorry. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here and enjoying the show. Uh, my name is George. My question is that I'm often talking with entrepreneurs who've gotten off the starting blocks. They're, they've got to the point where they've got 50 or 60 staff members. They're about seven, eight years into the business. They've kind of cracked the main problem that they set out to crack. And what's lying ahead of them is an academic journey that may get them that elegance you spoke about, that return on time, Alon. Yet they're kind of hollowing out on the inside. They're sort of wanting another problem. Um, what's the payoff? We've spoken a lot about the, the, um, the kind of the disaster that, that continuing along that road would look like. But what would some of the payoffs be for someone to transform themselves and ready themselves for that journey that we haven't talked about tonight? Great question. So uh, there's a, a, a book called Jack, Jack Walsh's book. He talks about, um, uh, if you've read it, it's, a, it's, it's an old book, but it's a really worth a read. And he speaks about in that book about the fact that he wanted number one and number two in the industry. Otherwise, he'd shut them down. He gave them five years and then shut down. I'm not talking about the bottom 10% story in that. I'm talking about that story. And then he achieved all this and then goes, now what? Which is a very similar thing actually on a more massive scale. Um, and then he goes to a um, general, I think it was an army general, I can't remember if it was army or navy or whatever the case may be, and he says to him, what do I do next? And the guy says, redefine your industry into a larger industry. And to me, that is the healthiest and the most um, successful way to, to move in that because I too see entrepreneurs that get to that, so let's call it that ceiling, 
Okay. And they are making money, but they do want that. They got that. They, they're in that dissonance between this is enough. They're more like sort of me and less like Richard, you know? <laughs> so, and, and I don't disrespect, I, I would love, and let me just, let me just, Put this very clearly. I don't disrespect Richard at all. I, I would love to have that. I just don't have it in me. And so I have to be authentic to me. So the first point is, is that if you are that kind of person or you are, let's say, m- my kind of person where I'm dissatisfied with status quo and I will die unsatisfied, I will be that guy. I'm not going to the top of a mountain going schwao. Then, then, then for me, that then it's about redefining my 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 business, redefining my industry, and going one step big, bigger. And the reason why it's safer is because I come from a place of confidence and a place of knowledge, and therefore it's a much easier. It's not a brand new learning curve. It's just a different learning curve. Um, does anyone have any other questions before we move on? We move on. Um, cool. So. Barriers to scale. So this is all about breaking down the walls to scale. So we kind of touched on a few of these things. Capsule might be one. People might be another. Mindset might be another. Um, Alon, if we can stick with you. Um, what's the, what are like three obvious barriers, like key things that you think any entrepreneur is going to encounter as they start uh, you know, the scaling process? Um, I think internally, I think the internal culture and and I, I, my sort of internal language for it is kumbaya, my friend. It's not like it used to be. And as you scale your business, you will see that people within your organization will say, you know, it's not you. Ne- you're not available to me anymore. And you know, it's not like it used to be. And it can't be for me. It can't be for me. And I'm ready to find that for me because for other people that's fine, but for me it can't be. And so for me, I have a decision to make: is either I want to make them happy or make me happy. And if they in, if they want to be in a small business where it is kumbaya, my friend, then they need to be in that business. But this business is growing. My relationship with that business has to change and theirs has to change. And if they are wanting to be in a business that is growing slowly and for other purposes, that that's fine. But if they want to be in a business that I am heading up, which is a growth business, they need to either grow um Piss or get off the pot. You see, Rich, this is what you do to me. Okay. Okay. So, so that, that, that's, uh, that's the, a, a big issue is the internal culture to that prevents, uh, growth. And I must say, I battle with that. I battle with that all the time and I'm getting a little bit better and better at it. And it's not about this. And in fact, I just came from a board meeting today. It's not about not being human around it. It's about saying that this individual cannot grow now. They need to go there. They don't need to exit. They just need to be in this role. And they, because what happens is very often when we start a business, the people that come along and are prepared to take the salaries we pay, we have huge loyalty to them. And then what happens is that those businesses grow and their competency doesn't grow with the, the the requirement, and by the way, that happens for you, the entrepreneur as well. So the next thing is is the question that I have on my wall is how are you standing in the way of Racecorp? I ask myself that question every single day because I know I have a limit, and and as soon as I feel that I can't me 
can't get to that point, then for me, it's my, my role is to step aside and put somebody in who can take it to that level. And I'll change my relationship and be like one of those people who will be walking around with my walking stick and going, you know, it's not like it used to be, you know? Okay. So the second thing is me. And the, and the third thing is actually the industry itself that you're in. Cause if the industry is, is, is a- aging, um, or changing, and you're trying to scale within the context of, of a, of a industry that's not, that's in decline or, or very mature. It's a far harder thing to do. It's not impossible. But it's a far harder thing to do. Great stuff. Howard, in your experience consulting over there in the States, um, like what are the kind of barriers that you've encountered? Most, most common barriers. If you were to pick three, what would they be? Um, I, you know, I think, I think about uh, two, two of them. One is most businesses have not figured out um, and really refined how to, how to get a customer or a client that, that they've, they've done it in a way that that's worked to a point, but to, to accelerate the business and to really scale you have to get very, very good at creating a customer. I think, you know, Peter Drucker has that famous quote that the purpose of a business is to create a customer. So it, I think that the rest of it is that they, as I'm paraphrasing that, that, that therefore it only has two functions, marketing and innovation. So, uh, but I think that the headline is how do you create a customer and how can you get better and better and more efficient and more dialed in to, to getting a customer? So, you know, if you think about, you know, I try to think about a way to simplify the formula for growing a business is how do you put as much uh, intention and focus on taking uh, friction out of getting a customer, getting a client, getting a listener? Um, and at the same time, how do you put as much focus on how do you take as much cost to maintain and delight that customer? If you can do both of those things and, or, and find people who delight in doing both of those things to do those pieces for you, you will scale and scale profitably. But most businesses either focus on one or the other or um, they, they don't really elevate uh, their marketing and their sales to the point where they reduced a lot of the, the friction out of, out of getting a customer. Uh, and they don't think about the costs that it takes to maintain and delight that customer. So, uh, Rich, if I can switch to you, um, when you cast your mind back to the beginning of starting to scale um, Missing Link, um, what did you discover, uh, either about yourself or th- through trying to grow the Missing Link brand and to become South Africa's leading presentation company? Um, what did you encounter? What, have you, what did you learn in your own journey when it came to scale in the beginning? So the easiest thing was to avoid competition altogether. You know, one of the biggest constraints uh, to scaling is to have a lot of competition. I think it was in zero to one, they speak about just eliminate all competition. When I started, I had what I refer to as a stone's throw business. I could take a stone, I could throw it out my window, and I could hit somebody else who did what we did, interactive design services, you know, interactive CD-ROMs, videos, web pages, things like that. So I looked at one area of the business that nobody else wanted to focus on, and that was presentations. And I saw that there was a need there. There was a pain there. Like people were really crap at this, and I built up from there. 
So the way to become one of the best respected exes in anything is do something where there's less competition. I realized that I wanted to make the race unfair. I wanted an unfair advantage. So instead of being, you know, a five horse race and competing in a five horse race, those were shitty odds. So I said I wanted to be a two horse race. I wanted it to be me versus the best of the other four. And that's what we set out to do. So we set set out to separate ourselves completely. So I was the king of a very small hill, right? Everybody else has bigger businesses, but nobody knows who they are. They're just one of another 100 design agencies. We are one of a very, very few presentation companies. But for me, again, scaling reputation was uh, speaks to my value and what I want to achieve. So, so that turned my dial a lot better. The other thing I want to just talk about quickly, another thing that I realized, though, was and since I started the company, and it was actually in a conversation I had with Alon and Kumaran, who's there as well, was that we were once asking each other a kind of hy- uh, uh, hypothetical question. And the question was this. And we all had to write down on a piece of paper. How much, if you had to bet everything right now to grow your business, if you had to put everything on the line to bet it on really, really growing your business, what percentage of your current wealth and business would you be willing to bet? And I think if you look at Alon and I, you would realize which one of us was willing to bet more. And I'm not going to go into the answers, but I will tell you that I was at about 20%. And the mistake was that my AR account was full. My at-risk account was fuller 21 years into starting the business. So when I started Missing Link, my at-risk, my assets at-risk account was empty. There was no risk. If I started something and I failed, I'd move back in with my parents, right? Nobody would have any shame. I was 22 years old when I started the company. But as the company grew, uh, I had more at risk. I've got kids. I've got a lifestyle I've built. And I'm, I'm too scared now to bet that. So fear started to take over. And that's one of the biggest constraints to scale is that you have more to lose the more you grow. So the faster you can scale, I guess, the better because everything happens so quickly that you don't notice it. By scaling slowly like I've done and almost organically as I've done, you get used to everything along the way. So now if you ask me, am I willing to put everything at risk uh, to get uh, slightly more? No, I'm not. Uh, What I am willing to do, though, is to compartmentalize the business I've built and to start trying to build other companies. And that's why uh, Alon is about growing one big business. I'm about planting seeds of lots of little ones. Cool. I want to stick on uh, fear for a second because I think it's the one thing that's universal to every human being. And I think last time I checked, everyone is human in this room. So, so how do you, how do you, I mean, how does one approach fear? I mean, Alon, in your experience, you know, 20 odd thousand businesses and, you know, what have you encountered as kind of easy things that any entrepreneur can apply to overcome the common barrier to scale being fear? So, so first of all, let me recognize that I too fear. Okay, we. I think loss is is um, the the fear of losing is is in me as well. But I have a, a relationship with it that might be slightly different to other people. I know we, seeing as Kamaran was uh, mentioned that you know in his journey he literally didn't even put up his own house. He put up his parents' house as collateral, you know, for which is even worse in a weird way to build his business. And, and, and Kamaran's thing is, is, will you bet the farm? Will you keep betting the farm on this, right? Now, when I was 23, uh, my first business um, that I was in, 
Um, and I had that investor uh, that uh, in me, and um, I built a, 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 a or I didn't build, I produced. Didn't, nothing was built there. A business called the New York Sausage Factory. It was in Pine Town in Durban, and it was an absolute abysmal failure. And I, I was told that it would be a failure by an accountant who had done the numbers and said it would not work. But I was, you know, young and, and arrogant and, and, and all those things that youth brings and stupid. And I tried to make this business work and, and, uh, and it failed, quite frankly. And then it took me quite a while to sort of come to terms with that. First of all, like, I had, I was given money, I had education, I had a mentor, I had everything, and I had failed. So, so then you start looking to blame everyone, and then you come back to yourself and say, no, it's me. And then finally, I pluck up the courage to go to this man, and I go to his uh, apartment, a penthouse, and, and I go in and I say to him, you know, um, I, fa- uh, I failed, and if it takes me the rest of my life, I'll pay you back. And sort of try and leave, and he goes, sit down. And he says to me, did I back you, or did I back the business? And he's, I said, you backed me. And he says, well, right now the business has failed. If you walk out that door, you have failed, right? Now, what did you do wrong? And what would you do different the next time? And then I, I, I mentioned that to him. And the next time he backed me, he didn't back me with money, he backed me with people. Okay. So why I'm telling you the story is for, because my relationship with, with fear changed then because it always became about the, the fear is that the business fails because I know that I'll keep trying. I'll get up again. I'll be depressed for a while. Okay. I'll probably get a beard. Okay. And then I like, and then I will go at it again because that's who I am. So I will never fail for as long as I stand up again. Now, there's a concept in entrepreneurship called reentry rate. And I've actually just literally finished writing an article on this today called re-entry rate. And re-entry rate is about the number of times entrepreneurs come back after failure. Okay, In the US, it's 3.6 times. In South Africa, it's 1.1 times. We fail once and never come back. Out of 10, are you talking about? Once. We just fail once. We try it, it doesn't work, and then we go and get a job. Okay, oh. Right? <laughs> we never come back again. Okay. So to me, it's about the, the fact, because the relationship is that I failed. Whereas it's about, I think when the nuance is when you ch- shifted over to the businesses failed and I tried damn hard and I tried, and I made all these mistakes, but I'm going to come at it again. It's a different relationship with fear. And so that's, that's sort of maybe I'm bullshitting myself, but that's how I live is that I live in fear that the business will fail, not that I will fail. Yeah. I love that. Love that. Um, Rich, what is, how have you approached fear? I mean, you're in, you speak in front of thousands of people all around the world. Um, you know, you coach speakers to overcome their fear of speaking. Um, what do you, what do you want to share with, uh, with our viewers and the guys tonight about approaching fear and the context of scale? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I have no idea uh, what to say around that. I, speaking in front of people isn't scary. Speaking, standing in the middle of a crowd of 100 people, that's scary for me and I avoid it. Speaking in front of hundreds of people is easy and I do that with no problem. I tend to uh, risk things that I think I have a fighting chance at and not, risking, not risk things that I think I don't. And I, everything Alon just said, I, I bought into completely. I love it absolutely. Is the idea that uh, the risks I do take in things, I... Uh, don't worry about it. If they don't work out, I still feel like I'm still on my path and my journey. Uh, I don't define myself uh, by the businesses uh, themselves. I design myself, uh, 
define myself by something higher. And I think it's just about uh, being, I, I tell you what I do fear. Uh, and it's a story I tell a lot, but I'll try and truncate it very quickly. Uh, when my great aunt died, two days before I walked into a room and she was in tears. And I said to her, what was wrong? And the backstory was that she'd met this guy, which was 20, and she died in her 80s. And she'd met this guy and he proposed to her. And when she came back, her parents found out that he wasn't Catholic. So she never spoke to him again, came back to Scotland. It's a long story. But basically, when I saw her 66 years after that, before she died, uh, I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I was wondering what my life would have been like if I'd married Leslie John Moore. And I realized that this is a poor lady who's, who's uh, lived her entire life and her dying days were spent regretting a decision she didn't make. And so I will certainly, that is my biggest fear without a doubt, is not uh, trying things that I will regret later. Uh, and that's also why I don't want to be involved in my business for too long, because I will certainly regret that. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to solve fear. Just, uh, I, oh, I do have one little lesson for you. A friend of mine, Paul Jason, he's the president or was the president of EO Durban, Entrepreneurs Organization Durban. And he was running a race with his brother. It was one of these ultra marathons. And, uh, uh, he started getting a cramp in his leg on like the second day or something. You know, he'd been running two full days and through the night. And he turned around to his brother, Mark. He said, dude, 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 I can't run anymore. I've got this cramp. I just can't go on. And his brother turned around to him and said, dude, can I get you anything? Do you want anything? And he said, like, do you, have, do you need a pill? And he said, yes, I need a pill. What do you have? He said, I have a cement pill. Harden the fuck up. And uh, I guess that's my one little parting lesson is have a cement pill. This isn't supposed to be easy. Uh, it's just supposed to be worth it. Um, I do love you, Rich. I do love you so much. That's my third one, so I can't swear anymore. Yeah, no, your F-bomb bank's full. Sorry, bro. Uh, cool. Um, Howard's just one more comment from you. I mean, let's keep sticking with fear, if you don't mind, for a second. Like, how have you personally approached them? I mean, you've run massive companies, you know, employing hundreds of people to, you know, sort of lifestyle, I suppose, consultative business, I guess. Like, what's your take on fear? Like, what, what do you want to share with uh, our audience today? I, I think that, you know, the idea that it's going to go away is, is, is not the pursuit. I, I, I said to somebody, the, you know, the, I think everybody's goal is to be fearless, but I think the actual goal is to just fear less. Uh, and, and the way to do that is, is to try to, to try to, you know, the, I was reading this, this terrific little book to my son um, where this sort of Navy SEAL was teaching his nephew uh, to not fear jumping uh, off of this small bridge into, into water. And he was paralyzed looking down at the water. Uh, and the line was that that fear is in the is in the waiting, not in the, in actually in the doing. Uh, and and that once you just let go, there's this exhilaration in in actually doing it. And and in the things that my son is afraid of, um, I keep repeating that to him and say, you know, you're afraid of of doing that thing because you're thinking about all the things that could go wrong instead of jumping into it and seeing that nothing will go wrong. Uh, I think, I think, uh, I, I don't know who said the quote, but that we, you know, we resist change because of fear of loss, less or never. Um, and so it, if you can sort of sit in that fear and say, okay, what am I really afraid of? What, what happens if the business just goes away? What happens if this fails um, and really sit in it 
And then at some point you just have to jump as long as it's, it's, it's not going to be fatal. Um, you just have to jump into it. The, the thinking about it is, is where people get paralyzed. It's hard to overcome, though, because your mind tends to latch onto those things. We're very good at that. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the negative narrative. Do you know what I mean? That keeps me up. Yeah, but you, you, yeah. but you find yourself, you find yourself somebody whose perspective that you trust, uh, and you ask them to hold up a mirror and say, I'm thinking about, am I thinking about this rationally? Uh, and can you help me? Uh, you know, lock lock arms and jump off the bridge with me. Can I come in there? And I think what Howard, I think what you're saying is so important. Um, and it's about another way to say it's about getting a different perspective because we also you lock in, etc. And we come, we view our reality from our eyes, from our experiences. It's always important to get another perspective. And and to me, it's very important to have people in your inner circle who can call you out, can call you names, and can tell you how they, 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 their perspective on this as well. Otherwise, you, you, get, you, you develop a very unhealthy relationship with whatever this thing is. And, and to me, you know, and I feel like a, as an advert for Kumaran, that's Kumaran for me. I will call Kumaran at, at 11 or 12 and, and vice versa. Kumaran has called me at 1 o'clock in the morning. I've, we, he knows I'm up and he, I know he's up. So we'll call each, each other and we'll just arrive at each other, pour a whiskey and say, am I thinking about this right? Because either – and because there's anxiety about unknown and then all the questions are asked and then the, sort of the fear dissipates and then you go. So perspective is, is, and not your own, not just your own, is a very important part of, of how you control that fear. Yeah. And uh, Howard, you've got a great quote, uh, quote, rather, when you're stuck inside the bottle, you can't read the label, right? And that's kind of that perspective. Right. Yeah. That's the right. perspective. It's hard to read the label from when you're stuck inside the bottle, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's it. You know, you, you, you can't. And, and your fears are, are, you know, often go all the way back to things that you can't even remember in your past. And you're not even sure why you have them. And they're, they're wounds from, from times you've gotten knocked down before. And so you're hesitant to them and, it, and you need somebody else to say, hold on, you know, I'm calling bullshit on this. And uh, you keep saying the same thing over and over again when that's not the reality of the situation. So, so, you know, how would you feel if you didn't do this? You know, you, you have to help somebody sit on the other side of the argument uh, and, and help them see, yeah, it could go wrong, but what if it went right? Yeah, what would that. that feel like? It's too easy for us to sit and feel like what it would feel to fail. Cool. I just want to take some questions from the audience. Um, where's that mic? You still got it there. Okay. Um, cool. Who's got a question? Anyone? No? Nothing? That good, was it? What have you got against hairstylists? <laughs> what have I got against hairstylists? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> cool. So I'm going to wrap up, guys. Um, so I'm just going to uh, tee up our events on Monday. So that's uh, next week, Monday. Um, we've got uh, three new panelists. We're going to be exploring other aspects of how to scale a business. And I'm just going to play you this quick little promo.
Cool. So we've got Clive Butko, who's the former CEO of Accenture. Um, he's now the CEO of Canon Venture Partners. Knife, uh, basically Kit Vanzel, the partner of Knife Capital, uh, one of the biggest VCs in the country. He's just had a major exit to Uber Eats. Um, and then, of course, Benji Kutsia, who uh, was just this week right in Silicon Valley competing at the World Cup of Startups. So it's going to be a cracking show. So please do check that out. Um, and before um, I hand over to Jonathan, I just want to, you want to come up? So Jonathan just wants to talk to you about uh, the Mesh Club very quickly. like a bit of a rock star with that intro and the little video. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> cool. Whoever here is a fellow entrepreneur, business owner? Hands up. Don't know whether to uh, console you and buy you a drink or give you a pat on the back. <laughs> both. Both, exactly. Drinks at the bar afterwards. Um, so the, the road of entrepreneurship can quite often be a, a lonely and tough one. And... It was one of the fundamental reasons that we created Mesh Club was to create a community of like-minded people so that they could see that they're not alone. Um, the proposition isn't too dissimilar of what you've experienced tonight. It's about information sharing. It's about learning from others' experiences and others' mistakes. And I'll share a story of um, meeting with one of the future panelists, uh, Vuyo, who's going to be coming on uh, one of the shows uh, in the next couple of weeks. And he was coming through to a meeting today to help me solve a challenge in my business. And uh, when he sat down, I could see he had had a rough day. And I just said to him, what's going on? He said, I'm launching this new business. Um, the guys that are helping me collect revenue uh, on, the, on the bank side have completely gotten it wrong. And it's delayed my launch by a week. And I said to him, I went through that exact same situation. I used the same bank, I used the same service, and it totally screwed with my revenue collection every month. And I opened up my laptop before we even started our meeting and I showed him a service that I'm using and um, walked him through it, explained how easy it was to change over. He looked at me and said, you have fundamentally changed the way I'm going to collect revenue. I'm going to be able to collect revenue 25% quicker than what I was. The service would take a week out of four weeks to collect. And those little interactions are the little golden threads on why we created the Space Mesh Club. Um, the, the tools, or rather the benefits are tools aimed at uh, helping to create the platform to ensure that those interactions happen. So Mesh Club has a, uh, a program that we're going to be launching at the end of this month uh, called Masterminds. And what we're going to be doing is um, running through a process of pairing you up with other entrepreneurs that are of similar scale, uh, similar size of business, similar amount of employees. One fun question we want to know is uh, if you could have dinner with three people alive or dead, who would they be? Just um, as a little uh, side note. And we're going to pair you up with other entrepreneurs that are like yourselves. And you're going to go through a session once a month, uh, which is going to be business therapy, discuss the good, bad, and ugly of business, much like we've just gone through now in this session. Um, yeah. 
Some of the other uh, benefits that we have are around making you more productive. We've got a great uh, vehicle concierge service. If you want to pick Rich up from Lanceria Airport, I know, Rich, that's where you prefer to fly in from. Not our tumbo. Uh, we've got some uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, hybrid vehicles that we'll uh, go and collect you from and bring a client through. And um, it's all about providing those touch points to get you to connect with other people like yourselves. And um, if you haven't already, please go on to the meshclub.co.za forward slash trial and uh, come and join the community of 300 uh, entrepreneurs. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, John. So basically, yeah, this, so what you've experienced now is not too dissimilar from a mastermind group. So it's, plus all the benefits that you get, um, it's part of, yeah, go for it. Um, just part of being a mesh member. I'm a new member, um, and thoroughly been enjoying connecting with other members. So do sign up at meshclub.coza forward slash trial. Cool. So, um, Alon is going to be signing books at the back. Do you want to just talk about your two books quickly? Um, uh, book number one called Lose the Business Plan. Um, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't believe in the business plan. I think it's the... I think to, 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 I think it's not the way to invest in, in a, in a business. I think you look at people, not the document. They all look the same, as I mentioned before. And the second book is, is based on a very interesting, um, statistic that 96% of businesses fail. But when you look further at that statistic, 90% of them wake up one morning and just say, I can't do it anymore. In other words, they're not put into liquidation. They just can't handle the pain anymore. And if you can change that stat, you can change a lot of things. So the second book is, is, is called What to Do When You Want to Give Up. It's based on a true story, amalgam of, of the entrepreneurs that I've worked with as well, um, and taking them through a different way to think about um, their business before they give up. So I, I'm, I'm pro-life when it comes to business, and, and, when it, and, and what that means is that... Um, that for as long as you can keep asking different questions and come with different answers, you keep trying. Uh, the moment you can't ask a new question and the moment that you can't come up with a new answer, perhaps that's the time. Or you go to, to people like Howard, et cetera, to get other people to give you a different perspective. <laughs> cool, fantastic. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, there you go, Howard. Yeah. Um, so uh, Rich has just launched this new rad thing called the sales department. Uh, Rich, do you want to just give us the headline around that? Yeah, sure. So uh, when entrepreneurs start businesses, they're often built on the premise of selling. So we go out and we sell and we do this, but it's quite hard to scale that. So what we do is we hire salespeople and we have a few salespeople, but we don't manage them properly. We think as entrepreneurs, we know what that looks like. But it turns out it's not that easy. It turns out that we confuse being able to close a deal with being able to understand the process of sales. And the sales department is a business that's designed to, just like we sometimes go to an outsourced CFO, this is an outsourced sales manager for entrepreneurial-run businesses. We will come in, we will hold the entrepreneur and the sales force accountable. Uh, we have professional sales managers who will run a process or put in your proper CRM system. They'll make sure that your sales guys are hitting their all their metrics, the calls, the meetings, and the deals. And then we'll train them every month. So it's outsourced uh, professional big business level of sales management for smaller companies. Fantastic. And of course, you're only taking 10 as part of the Secrets of Scale. So if you are listening to this on my podcast post-event, or if you are here in the room and you do want to outsource your sales function kind of thing, um, what you need to do is email ranger 
at salesdepartment.co and there is an early bird price. Um, so I think there's a bit of work there that's ongoing with the team uh, that Rich has currently got um, working for him with the sales department. So you will save about 30K. So what's that? Ranger at salesdepartment.co. Cool. And then, of course, uh, <laughs> last but not least, we've got um, an offer from Howard Mann. So Howard Mann, we mentioned his book earlier. It's called The Business Brickyard. Um, Howard, what's the headline there? And where can our listeners and viewers go and check out this book? Uh, it's a, a small book I wrote a number of years ago, but I think it's a fairly uh, timeless uh, thoughts on on finding your passion and purpose and getting back to the basics and making your business more fun to run. Uh, and if you go to businessbrickyard.com, there is a uh, place to pop in your email there and it'll it'll send you a full PDF of the full book. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And lastly, I just want to say thank you to... That's entre- one thing. Yeah, go for it. Really. Uh, the address is ranger at thesalesdepartment.co. So T-H-E salesdepartment.co. Thank you for the correction. So it's ranger at thesalesdepartment.co. Uh, I just want to lastly thank um, Alon Reyes. Dude, you've been amazing. Thank you for sharing all your experience and insights with us tonight. Rich... Love you as always, buddy. Always, always a laugh a minute. Um, Howard, thank you, dude, for sharing, <laughs> for uh, for sharing no, your experience. Like, like comic relief, like Barney at a kids' party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Where's the Barney suit next time, dude? <laughs> um, and Howard, thanks, brother. It's been uh, an, an absolute pleasure. And last but not least, thank you to each and every one of you who've made the time to come to the event tonight. Really appreciate it. Hope you've all enjoyed it. And we'll see you on Monday. Uh, we'll be exploring the second event around how to scale your business. This is Matt Brown, and I'll see you in the future show. Thank you. This is the Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown Show. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.